We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. I'm Kimberly McKenzie. And I'm Paul Nazareth. Welcome to The Intersection. After years of knowing each other only on social media, Clay Buck and Paul Nazareth finally have a chance to sit down and have a meaningful conversation. Clay is an experienced fundraiser with proven knowledge in all aspects of fund development. He has expertise in developing the systems and infrastructure that support donor-centered fundraising, particularly with individual donors and annual giving. Clay is a certified fundraising executive and AFP master trainer and was recently named among the top 20 charity influencers online. He teaches in the fundraising and nonprofit management certificate programs at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and is incredibly generous and active on social media and welcomes new connections. In this episode, we started with the intention of talking about donor retention, and as you can imagine with Clay and Paul, the conversation takes off. What does systems thinking, leadership, board recruitment, and staff retention have to do with your annual fund? Clay and Paul go way upstream, and um, we talk about democratizing philanthropy, engaging the right people with a good story, political fundraising, crappy bosses, retirement, professional development, being invested in the success of your team, and working in silos. Yes, there is a lot. Mostly, I just bask in the company of hanging out with two of the coolest guys in the sector. Hey, Paul, I have a surprise for you today. Okay. Okay. Guess who's joining us? Uh, we Clay. Clay Buck is here. Oh, Clay, do you want to come in? He was here. There Hello. He is. Hey. You got to get the buttons right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad um, that you joined us today. And I am also really surprised to hear that you guys don't actually, you just met. This is our first actual direct inter- uh, interaction other than on, Dance around uh, each other all the time, but I've never been able to make the time to do it. So excited mm-hmm. to do that today. I am too. I am too. A little bit of pressure. So many people have said, oh, you and Paul are going to love each other. I'm like, okay. Well, okay. well how's, let it us, going? how's it going let so us, far? I mean, the love is huge. What can I say? Oh. Oh, well, the secret I'm trying to find out is why do we have so much in common? We'll figure that out as time goes on. I like it. I there's fundraisers we do, but uh, we'll figure out the rest. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Good. So, so I um, also wanted to get you on here, Clay, because we were having a conversation mm-hmm. in another room. I don't remember exactly where. And you said something super smart. And I thought, oh, we need to get Clay on the podcast. Um, now you're trying to think about what Well, I, usually I get, you know, you said something super sarcastic, which is a core value. So, I, you know, I'm glad to hear that it was smart. That's was smart. Um, yeah. I think we were talking about mid-level giving. Yeah. So I yeah. wondered if we could we could start there because um, Rakesh and I just did this donor engagement workshop and mm-hmm. some of Adrian Sargent's work was part of my research for that. And this one of my favorite fundraising statistics is if you improve your donor retention by 10 percent, 
you can improve lifetime value by 200%. Wow. 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 Yeah. Right. So it's a really handy little statistic to pull out every once in a while to sound smart, but that, (laughs) that research is actually really solid. And I think a lot of organizations focus on acquiring new donors, but they're missing all sorts of opportunity in their database. Agreed. Oh, agreed. 100%. So there, podcast's over. What what else do you want to talk about? Uh, (laughs) So has that been your experience? And and do you work with clients to fix that problem at all? So second question first, my primary focus um, is on low and mid-range. Now, give me a moment, please, to pull out my soapbox. um, Because and I don't have an answer to this, and I wish to heavens I did. Mm. Um, we gotta find better words than low and mid-range. Oh yeah. You know, people don't walk around going, I'm a low-end donor, I'm a small gift owner. You know, I just I, I wish we could find a word that we could all agree on. And I've heard grassroots and I've heard, you know, all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. Um I so I focus nearly 100% on the low and the mid range for lack of a better phrase Mm -hmm. and take the, the approach that every gift is a major gift from the donor's perspective. Mm -hmm. So those 25 and 50 and 150 and 250 to them, that's a major gift. So there, there to me is where we falter in our stewardship is we call them low and mid range and we treat them like low and mid range. Mm-hmm. And investing in that retention is about honoring the 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 intent and the level of that gift from the donor's perspective, not from the organizational perspective. So retention, right? Is is retention the holy grail that it, that we talk about it? Yes, and that statistic is correct, right? Increase your increase your your, your retention by ten mm-hmm. percent. But let's also acknowledge that not every gift is meant to be retained. Not every donor wants to be. Mm -hmm. where we fail though is not giving them the opportunity Mm -hmm. you know is is not stewarding lynn wester says this best if you can't steward your donor you don't deserve to have that donor. that is beautiful (laughs) and i I tend to, to i tend to agree with it i've been in the seat i get it i know how hard it is and how much of an investment it takes but if we look at it from that perspective that you just laid out this is this is number one about the stewarding the donor and being attentive to that donor's intent in their connection to the mission, mm-hmm. in their connection to the beneficiary, and recognizing the ROI of it. Those two things. Investing in retention, investing in retention is probably the single greatest investment that we can make because we do spend so much time trying to acquire donors when there are donors in your database that. What is it in the fundraising effectiveness um, uh, research where it, it costs a dollar 40 to to raise a dollar and 95% of those donors aren't renewed. Something there's a couple of, yeah, it's FEP has that. Um, uh, I think it's in one of Henry Rosso's books that has it. There's a couple of ones that, that kick around, but that's, that's about right. About like a dollar 25, a dollar 40 to acquire a donor, um, you know, 85, 90 cents to, to keep a donor. 
it's the math is the math is straightforward and the math is simple it's tough though because it's a leaky bucket thing while yeah. people are trying to bail out you know a sinking ship that's the thing they're 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 doing it with a bucket that's leaking and the, the problem is is that there's always more transactional you know there'll always be fundraising so that's the challenge is that they've been cash and acquisition zombies forever and you know they just keep trying to fundraise forward and so they bring more people through but it's just a terrible system that's what i find i think the other challenge is is what's the case for retention a lot of boards and not even fundraising eds and stuff no one's helping them understand the case and it's only fundraisers who understand this stuff and it's become a bit of a secret handshake to both success and failure so how do we get the case to the right people so they understand how do we, why they need to invest in this how do we get the case to the right people and how do yes yeah you know, yeah you know what i think i think it's I, i've said this before probably not here because we haven't really talked about annual funds on this podcast before but it's because stewardship doesn't have a revenue line up against it so when I was an executive director and director of fundraising, I'd take a budget to the board and say, I need to spend more money on postage and I need to spend more money on um, paper and we need to send out more communications. And because there wasn't a revenue stream up against that expense, it was really tough for folks to. So how do we, I mean, there's got to be, wow. there's got to be some data to support that stewardship piece. So in the, in the States, um, Penelope Burke and Cygnus Research has done this. It was one of the biggest sessions at the last uh, in-person icon, right? She had like 600 people or something in that room. Mm -hmm. And she quantified stewardship from all sorts of perspectives. Really? For me, the biggest one was we are now living in one of the biggest reverse donor journeys ever. And she proved with her American data that when someone confirms a bequest, their annual giving goes up, their propensity for major giving goes through the roof because they just solidified the relationship. They made you groceries and they made you a Kono owner on the house if you're <laughs> in the will. And all of a sudden now everything else is going up. So that's the challenge with her research though, is she needs high levels, like a quarter million responded donors. She has trouble getting it in our country, but she totally got that piece and we're trying to get more of her data and that kind of donor journey stream out there as part of the case to say that, you know, we if, if we follow that stewardship plan, it's got quantifiable dollars at every level today, mid range tomorrow. And yes, definitely in the future and assets. It's so many things, hmm. it, you know, we, we have, we have data like, like, Penelope Burks. I know there are other studies on, um, on you know the the speed at which you send a thank you and thank you gifts that were were received in acknowledgement or more likely renewed. There's all kinds of different studies. We can all dig into them. One of the key things is institutional. What does it mean for you? And if you can get the leadership perspective, and if you can, as a fundraiser, be the driver of look, we've got to measure our own metrics. So look what happens when we don't steward, look what happens when we do, which takes quite honestly, some, some bold and visionary board leadership, which forgive me for going a, a little bit of a field here, but, but indulge me for just, Oh a no, second. we like that. Go ahead. <laughs> I tend to approach things. I, I got in touch with and started digging into about five years ago, the concept of systems thinking. Yeah. 
which comes from manufacturing and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a system is a, is an interconnected, interworking uh, group of processes that are informed and driven by feedback loops. Well, fundraising is is a systems thinking endeavor. We tend to think that fundraising is linear: ask, receive, get. Stephen Screen. Uh, uh, better funders encourage a uh, company virtuous cycle love it live it breathe it teach it right ask thank report that is absolutely the correct approach but it's still a circular linear approach where 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 fundraising is so much more about a systems methodology and all these parts working together so here's my here's my take on stewardship and mid-range giving it has to come from leadership mm-hmm. We go out and we recruit board members to be a part of our boards because of their expertise in other areas, because of their connections, or candidly, because of their wealth, right? And we bring these board members on that do not necessarily have fundraising or nonprofit experience. Mm -hmm. So they don't know the research that we we know. They don't know the details that we know. They don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And that board then is responsible for hiring and firing and managing the executive director. So they go out when the executive director leaves because there is high turnover, they go out and bring somebody from the business world who has this great business acumen who's going to run our nonprofit like a business. And so that person comes in and they don't have the history. And then we've got short tenure in development directors. And so every 12 to 18 months, we have a new development director cycling through. So now all of a sudden, we got a whole leadership that has no history and no depth in the knowledge of exactly this type of research, which means if you're that frontline fundraiser who does have that, the, the, the brave and bold and wonderful listeners of this podcast, and who does have this knowledge, you're in constant selling mode of having to convince and justify what we know works. So the breakthrough on this has to come ultimately from the board level. When boards are coming in going, there is a body of knowledge, there is a body of research, there is a body of evidence that works in nonprofit and works in fundraising that isn't coming from other areas and that we can show. Why is a board looking at a postage line? I mean, that's the kind of thing that just makes me lose my mind, but it happens so often. You know, you gave me a budget goal to raise. That's that is what I, as your staff member, have to raise. I get that. And sometimes that's dictated, and sometimes we're a part of the process, but regardless, there's a budget line that I have to raise. I am your expert. I am your resident staff who knows how to do this, and I am presenting the cost to you in context of the whole management. As a board, you are going to look at that. I am justifying that with my knowledge on what cost per dollar is. And if I say I need $10,000 in stamps this year, then I need $10,000 in stamps. And I realize how easy this is to say on a soapbox. But to me, that is the value proposition that has to move us forward. If we can break through to that, then we can get to do the work that we need to do because it's the right thing and the best thing to do for our donors and our beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. I find that soapbox rants are are truly reflections of people with a lot of experience. Because again, we're banging our heads against the wall to try to figure out what's the disconnect and why is it not working, right? So here, what I think we've definitely all, and this has been a lot of our conversations, uh, Kimberly, with other people too, is the disconnect is at the board level. And it's not that we're trying to say we're trying to create more board oversight or meddling. Again, a shout out to our colleagues in, in communications and marketing 
communications and fundraising are the two professions where everybody thinks they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. When the fundraiser or communication person presents a plan, everybody's like, yeah, but what about TikTok? I heard about that. Mm-hmm. They're like, how is this even a challenge? So I think one of the biggest gravity elements here, Clay, what you said is that we need to empower fundraisers to be confident in saying, I am your expert. Again, that's why we are doubling down on CFRE and other things to have people confidently say, I am your expert. You got to trust me on this instead of, because a lot of people, me included, are trying to figure out how to educate boards, how to help people manage up and all that. And that's actually not going to be an easy thing to do because board members don't have the capacity, time, or even will to take fundraising training. The ED doesn't want to make it a priority either in onboarding or an ongoing time with the board. They want to they want to use every moment with their board on very kind of operational strategic type, type things. Cool. Well, you're not questioning the person in charge of the physical plant. The boiler's going to explode. We need a new boiler. We trust Jerry, the, the physical plant owner, to pick the right boiler. But why are we not trusting the person who is trained in fundraising? And again, in a lot of cases, hiring people with experience. So this is a really interesting point here to figure out how we help individual fundraisers to make the case for their expertise and how to not just uh, educate boards on fundraising, but who are fundraisers. And do that. This is why I go to systems holistic thinking. Because we're talking about mid-range and we're talking about retention rates. Contextually, though, there's so much of it because, I mean, all all three of us work in kind of support and consultancy space. I really feel a responsibility incumbent upon us is to get as much good information to frontline fundraisers as possible and empower fundraisers in these important conversations we are having right now that we've got to drive as a profession, as professionals, Mm -hmm. we've got to get our boards and our leadership away from the obsession with wealth and the obsession with the wealthy donor, the event donor, that's where boards go to. And because they're in the governance position, that's what they know. That's how they were fundraised before. They were invited to that. So that's their context. We, as a responsibility to many levels mm-hmm. to, and to many conversations happening in the space right now, we as fundraisers need to empower ourselves and encourage and empower each other to the high net worth donor is not the only donor. There was a, a report three or four years ago, and I want to say it came, doesn't matter where it came from, uh, but there were a couple of them. And they all came out and said, the new donor pyramid is now 93.7. The new donor pyramid is now 92.8. And I can send you those links to those articles. <clears throat> because the premise of all of them was, if this is the new reality, then this is how we need to be working. And I go, just because that's the reality doesn't mean it's right. We have no data on Pareto. We don't know if if Pareto was right or not. But mm-hmm. Pareto principle has been a guiding principle for the profession for at least 100 years that I know of from, from history. I mean, look at Cy Seymour, Designs of Fundraising, 1967. He was talking about Pareto then, right? Why Why do we want to be so exclusive of any donor at any level like the mid-range or the low range? 
Where are your major gifts going to come from? Where are your legacy gifts going to come from? And let's forget about the long term, the end term. What about just valuing a $50 donor because they're a $50 donor? It's To me, that is the, sh- the, the fundamental shift that truly needs to happen democratizing fundraising and philanthropy that it is belongs and open to everybody and that's where we if we can get to that mindset at our leadership level that's where we can get to the importance of investing in mid-range low-range retention renewal engagement all of those important strategies i worked with a um, six-figure donor um, and i asked him one day i said you must get asked for money all the time what do you do and he said, well, I give them all $1,000 and then wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so at the higher level too, it's the same thing. They give them all 10000 and wait when they've got capacity for sure. 10 So you think about how much, how, how, you know, I was going to say how much money's left on the table, but I don't like talking about fundraising in that way. Mm-hmm. So let's say how much good you could do if you actually engaged and stewarded your donors in a way that brought forward more meaningful investment in your cause. There's there's several moments in my career over the last 30 years that have just stood out as solid moments that I remember, you know, down to what I was wearing that day because they were so monumental. I did an event, I've told the story a few times. Um, I did an event uh, six or seven years ago. It was a breakfast event. Um, very, very, you know, hoity-toity um, business leaders. We had a relatively major celebrity, um, you know, and it was come and have breakfast and learn about the programs and learn about everything. And then you're on your way, but it was a big fundraising thing. And we had people in the room that other leaders in the city wanted to be with, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We had a young, a young woman, 13, uh, talked with her family and agreed to tell her story. And she was kind of our presenter. And then of course, our celebrity host followed up with the ask. Uh, and she got up and told her story, probably 250 people in the room. And, you know, the host comes up and makes makes the ask and everybody thankfully starts reaching for. Side note, you can do a breakfast event, like this whole notion of people have to be drunk at night in order to like stop that. <laughs> like, I really want that to stop. But anyway, everybody reaches for their place card. And I was sitting next to the young girl's mother, who we had invited as our guest. And she reached over to, I'm going to cry again. She reached over to grab the pledge card. And I said, no, 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 you're here with us. You are our guest that is not expected of you. You know, thank you. But we, and she looked at me and she said, Clay, in very broken English, who am I to accept this help for me and my child without also providing it to others? Mm-hmm. Mind blown. And I just went, how many of our donors are taking, are thinking about giving from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I've received help from over here. I've been a benefit of this charity. And so I'm going to give it over here. And when we relegate ourselves and limit ourselves in our outreach and in opening ourselves to everyone, we're, we're, we are making that decision for donors. We are making decisions for those mid-range donors that your gift isn't worth enough. You're not worth enough yeah. Yeah. to renew. And who are we to make that decision for others? And I know where they're going to feel that way. They're going to crowdfunding. And what's really impressive about that, because again, you know, you got to learn from something that's winning. It's in the billions total in the trillions 
but I watch the cycle of being engaged, giving, and again, the amounts are tiny, right? $20 is the top end of the average. Five and $1 is a regular thing. But that people are seeing what we can do when we pool these funds. But unfortunately, again, the, the impact is just one person, one life, one story, which is the easy way. But there's no question that it works. And there's no question that people are, uh, people are engaged because they're giving and they're giving again. And in fact, you know, there's no, you know, there's no accountability, there's no transparency, but the payoff is they just get to see total raise, person got it, you know, life changed. And that's one of the things we got to remember that in a lot of cases, we're overthinking our stewardship. Yes. People aren't asking for gigantic reports. Everybody have a 75 page. I'm like, look, our own staff can't read it, let alone the donor. Tell them what you did with the money. Show it to them as as clearly as possible. Correct. Correct. Two and things, if I, two, yeah. if I may. Sorry, Kimberly. No, no. I'm just going to sit back and just watch you guys. What <laughs> I knew would happen when you got together. Right. So, keep going. The, the first is, let's acknowledge that crowdfunding is not new. Let's acknowledge that we've been crowdfunding as long as we've been doing fundraising. We just have better platforms for it now. Crowdfunding is the same thing we saw. What was it? 1918, the big YMCA campaign. Uh, right, that big famous turn of the century campaign where they built it in, you know, and they put in the newspaper. And we've all heard that story. If we haven't, um, I know it's cited in Steve McLaughlin's book, uh, The Data Driven Nonprofit, and another place. It's a phenomenal story. Crowdfunding is what we have been doing for centuries. We just have new platforms for it. It's the same concept, really, it, just with with modern tech to support it. And in other words, that's that's always been true. Yeah. I worked at one organization where we had real trouble getting the receipts out. Getting receipts done was just a problem for a whole number of issues. So we stopped sending receipts. What? We stopped sending receipts receipts, and we did an automated paper letter that was part of the gift entry process. And gift entry process was receive the check, enter it, enter the batch, and then process the batch into thank you notes. And the thank you notes were quite simply, dear Kimberly, we just received your gift. There was a shout of joy of gratitude here at the organization. We we have put it to work right away. In the in the next couple of weeks, you will receive an official receipt that you can use for your taxes yeah. and uh, an update on on what we're doing with the money. But just wanted to take the time right away to tell you thank you and that we have it and that we are putting it to work on your behalf. Boom! And it was automated merge print. We started doing that. We've shot retention. I I truly think that alone helped increase retention by about 15 to 20%. Because we took out the dither of trying to get a receipt done and trying to get process done and just went to an immediate gratitude just to tell the donor, we got the gift. Mm -hmm. That's what an acknowledgement is. That's what they care about. There's we got it. You know, they they care care about about whether or not. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. Paul, you go ahead. And we and we've got to create a better system for them at tax season to even get them. Because again, we're, we're relying still too much on paper, but the thank you process, that's a really interesting piece there. Uh, and again, on the crowdfunding side, this existed before uh, on the social side, because actually banks used to do this. Whenever there was a tragedy or things like that, they would say, go into your local bank and give to X. Yeah. And those were fun set up. And again, that was the anti-democratization because it was about... Who was choosing when they would do that? Now you can do it for anybody or anything. And mm-hmm. again, the tune of trillions. So every time a charity says to me, we can't go deeper on annual fund or any of these things, I'm like, I, the capacity is right over there. 
and I could easily find any of your donor base on these on these platforms. So this is the thing. We're not respecting those entry level donors. Again, we're not showing them. We're not giving them that emotional payoff that they're looking for just to feel part of the mission. Mm-hmm. So our system is broken. Again, we're not moving them um, up the spectrum or pipeline or whatever people want to say this. But again, that's the challenge too. You know, everybody wants to believe it's demographics and you know donor systems, but now with people coming in at different ages and stages, with different ages and stages having different types of money. Mm-hmm. But again, people are always telling me young people don't have any money, and yet you know I bumped into a lot of young people in tech and other you know business owners and things like that. They've got money. In fact, they've got more disposable income than a lot of older professionals, right? And they're more socially conscious too. We will always afford the things we care about. Yeah. We will always find a way to afford the things we care about. Yeah. Make me care enough to afford it. You know, it drives me crazy. Even just when, when it happens all the time, when fundraisers will say, well, but my charity is really hard to raise money for. It's not like I've got puppies and kittens and rainbows. And I, and I always say, well, what you don't have is a good reason to give to you. <laughs> you don't have a good story. That's it. Every organization thinks theirs is the hardest to raise money for, but that's simply not the case. Because, you know, a good story can engaging the right people with a good story will result in revenue. If you don't have a good story to tell, what are you doing? Yeah, you should, probably shouldn't exist. Look at, I don't know if this is true in Canada or not. I, you're poly, honestly, your, your political system confuses the heck out of me. I'm sorry. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, are I mean. You, I, are you kidding me? I mean, U.S. politics, I know, right? <laughs> oh, are we going to go there? Okay. Well, but okay. I'm going to use U.S. politics as the great example because we, as a, as a sector, did not learn from we didn't learn from the Obama campaign mm. that digital outreach and the amount of money they raised from 10 and 15 and $20 donors in the millions, if not billions of dollars, mm. same for grassroots candidates all over the place. We have not learned from our colleagues in political fundraising mm. because I'm sorry, but selling policy, good Lord, yeah. like really, really. And honestly, if you think about the political donation, what you're asking somebody to do is to donate to support your advertising. That's the ask. Mm -hmm. But they're positioning it as your investment in a better future. You're buying hope. You're buying, you know, and people are just because it becomes identity. Mm -hmm. This is who I am as a person. This is what I believe in. And this candidate upholds my ideals. And I'm, I'm being totally bipartisan here. And I'm, I'm citing Obama, but the Trump campaign well, did I was it this past say, year. Like he was, <laughs> all money identity. Yeah. Cow. Yeah. This is who I am. This is where the work of, and you, you guys know that I'm moderately obsessed with this, having done the course and encouraging as many people to access it in and whatever, whether the full course or um, the information on it, but the work that Jen Shang and Adrian Sargent are doing yeah. at the Institute of Sustainable Philanthropy yeah. Yeah. in the philanthropic psychology. Yeah. Donors are walking around going, I, I am the kind of person that supports animal rescue. I am the kind of person that supports uh, outdoors advocacy. I, this is who I am as a person. Our value prop, I started to say, our, our mandate. Yeah, maybe our mandate is to find 
help find those people because no matter if if somebody started a nonprofit, it means they saw a problem in the world that they wanted to fix. And if there's a problem in the world that needs fixing, it means there are other people that believe it too. Mm-hmm. And our goal, our whole joy, I think, is finding those other people whose identities are wrapped up in that problem solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then keep them. Yeah. The, the largest charity that, that my family and I support is actually fundraising training, fundraising education. Um, when we sit down and look at our giving for the year, that's where the most of our philanthropic dollars go to because I'm, that's why I do podcasts. I, I, I am the benefit of having had great mentors early in my career. And it grieves me that so many people didn't. And I see so many stories and I just go, wow, you had really crappy bosses. And I am so sorry mm-hmm. um, because boy, this profession could be a whole lot better if we had the kind of experience that I did, which is why it's important to me now, 30 years in seeing retirement coming. There's a number there. Um, is there really? There is a finite number on, there is a date on the books. And that is the day. It's a little terrifying. Honestly. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because I have a really hard time imagining you saying, okay, I'm going to retire now. I don't want to do this anymore. Well, I mean, retirement means different things to different people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, for me, I think retirement will be mean like nine and 10 hour days as opposed to, you know, 12 and 14. So or, right. you know, with the permission to do the things that you couldn't do before when you needed well, to. Well, there you go. Like stronger. sleep. Well, or, or, you know, like, Keynotes to people that don't have the revenue, like the direct revenue, you know, uh, piece, like not just boards and charities and all this kind of stuff. But all of us in in kind of strategic fundraising know that we got to get out and talk to business owners and spend more time with the tech community. But it takes time for someone to do that. And all of us are too busy raising core, core dollars just to keep the damn lights on Mm -hmm. to be able to do that enlightened type stuff. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And I think we need more people. And in fact, semi-retirement is going to be the time for them to do that because that's the only time they have the experience, the clout, the access, the networks to break into those worlds. So that that's the one we're going to need. We're going to need a whole army of semi-retired experts. Probably that's the time to get to those really serious boards in all those places. Right. Can I tell you though, what I'm really excited about along those lines? Oh, The young people coming into the profession now, all of, again, a a lot of this focus of we are starting to get such wonderful, I mean, the fact that kids are kids, sorry, I don't mean to be dismissive. I'm not, I don't, but the fact that people are coming into the profession going, I'm not wearing a suit and tie. No, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I'm going to work from home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm going to raise damn good money and do good relations. I cannot wait to see this generation enter into the leadership roles, both mid and and high level. And what we look like 10, 15, 20 years from now, I think is going to be a phenomenal growth bolstered by Cy Seymour and, you know, those old campaigns, right? That history's uh, Penelope Burke bolstered by that with the the new attitudes coming in. I, I, I'm a, permanent Pollyanna, I have to believe that that's going to push us in a new and good direction and evolve in a way I, I need to live in that belief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but I'm a hundred percent, a hundred percent with you on, on this sort of shifting sea change of the importance of, of knowing all of this and being able to implement it and let, and, and us as the professionals leading our leadership to it. 
Yeah. Well, that that we did a we did an episode, Paul and I, on influencing change. So I would encourage listeners to go back and and have a listen to that episode as well through this lens because we talked about um, getting budgets approved by the board and and the and I and I complete you know I agree with you on the systems thinking approach and we talked about it just mm-hmm. in the podcast that's going to go next week. Um, that that if you're caught up in fundraising tactics, the system is broken, mm-hmm. and and I meant that through the lens of what the conversations that are happening in the boardroom. So, we need the concept of servant leadership, um, leading with humility, mm-hmm. as fundraisers. I think we need to see more of that because if we if we do approach this uh, profession as with with the responsibility and the weight of creating changes across the entire system the fundraising person on staff is the person who will influence change with program staff who will influence change with communications who will influence change with the board we touch on all of those things and we help donors realize their dreams like it is such i might actually want to start fundraising again i i'm listening to myself i don't know but but no, what I do now is I coach fundraisers because I want them to see that this is an awesome responsibility. And if we could just help them be better understood, they could stay in their jobs longer, then they could raise more money, then they could do more good. You know, these, yeah. those. Strategic that's, support. That's the key thing. Again, yeah. the profession grinds down fundraisers to be grinders, to be, mm-hmm. the tac- you know, the tacticians and just bang it out. Mm-hmm. Where someone needs to support them constantly in their own lives and in mm-hmm. their work mm-hmm. to push up and out strategically. Make time for your own growth. Remind yourself you got to get out from the tactile, get out from the transactional based to go up market and do the things you know are important. And again, we've got to keep making cases for everybody. Mm-hmm. Even for the person who does the work, you've got to do the stewardship. It's got to be a KPI. It's got to be an activity in your plan. You got to make time for it. And you got to have the budget and the things you need. Again, and one of those, yes, dang it, is stamps. Yeah. Again, I, I, first half of my career, man, I used to get made fun of in my university advancement shop. But it's cute that Paul likes to send holiday cards. I'm like, this is cash money. <laughs> Again, what was crazy was we're like, you know, what are we relying on prospect research to know also when the person whose bequest we're tracking for 40 years has passed away? Because in you know in a lot of different parts of both the Canada and the states, we don't have public guardian or trustees or people to notify us of the death of the donor, all that kind of stuff. Stewardship, if you wanna, you know, my dad always said, give people the bad reasons to do the right thing because if they're they're never gonna be convinced by the good reasons. Cool. So stewardship fulfills so many functions. You know, again, on the bequest side, on the relationship with the donor, again, any business would tell you that upselling is the greatest way to grow your revenue streams. Why you, why again, why are we cash zombies? So many times we're trying to get these new new donors and they're pushing the fundraiser to think that way, but we've got to coach and help the fundraisers to make the time and space to have the full strategy they need all year round. We, um, we do ourselves a disservice when we transactionalize fundraising and make it about dollars. And I know that sounds, and there's a lot of research and a lot of discussion about this, you know, fundraising is about relationships, but it's true. 
right? We do ourselves a disservice when we transactionalize it and make it about what is the dollar value of the donor, right? It's I, the I, it's I always the come to... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Boys, boys. Yeah. <laughs> One at a time. <laughs> that's that's gentleman to you clay you finish up and then let paul talk sorry <laughs> that's okay I I, I I i came to this the other day you know 30 years and i'm still having new thoughts when we develop a fundraising budget or a fundraising budget is assigned to us the fundraising budget is a physical manifest our goals right that is a physical manifestation of the cost of the mission in other words, our job as this nonprofit, the problem we are solving is this. This is our mission. And in order to fill that from that mission, it costs this much money. Mm-hmm. That budget line, that fundraising goal is, is the physical statement of this is what it costs for us to support that mission. That's what we're that's what we're we're after. That's what the proposition in in fundraising and our planning and retention and all of the cost of stamps is going to that cost to make feeding hungry people, rescuing pets, advocacy. It, if we can shift our thinking into, I think, into that mode, mm-hmm. my fundraising goal isn't a revenue generating transactional. My fundraising goal is truly solving a problem, is truly ending hunger whatever the mission is Mm -hmm. and approach all of our work across the organization Mm -hmm. from that perspective, then it doesn't matter how much stamps costs. It matters. How are we getting to the problem, solving the problem in the mission? Did you have something to say, Paul? I'm just trying to help Clay to dig deeper into some of his thoughts on this. You know, one of the disconnects there is, that the program teams and the fundraising teams are developing those two numbers in complete silos. Exactly. That's exactly it. Say more, Kimberly, please. No, you, yeah. it, but that's that's exactly it, is that the fundraising department is other than. It's over there. And we've talked about this before. and And so the change that needs to be made is more conversation between the program staff and the fundraising department because a lot of times and we're going to be talking about grants in a future podcast but the programs are often funded with restricted government funds or restricted grants and this fundraising function is often unrestricted operational support and we have done a horrible job as a sector helping people realize that that operational unrestricted support that they give is fundamentally critical to mission delivery. So there's that, there's that disconnect. I think. I can hear ED saying, I don't got time for this. Yeah. Well, they don't listen to this podcast. So it takes more time to bring people together to develop things, you know, collaboratively. Yeah. I think what people need to hear from us is this is going to pay you out. Yeah. You're going to fundraise more effectively and you're going to spend less and take less energy. You're going to raise more and you're going to have everybody invested in everybody else's success. Because that's one of the, one of the groups that I'm always asking to bring to the table too is the finance office. Yeah. 
Well, because they're out there making crazy, I you know, uh, um, goals and things, and yeah. also the ones deciding on that that number Clay talked about is how much does it cost to raise X Y Z. I think one thing that every organization should start doing is to measure the performance of the annual fund folks based on the success of the major gift folks. Because, because. If you're lucky enough to have both. If you're lucky enough to have both. Um, because our, that's, that's how we increase level of engagement across, across the channels. And so if my success as a legacy fundraiser was dependent on the success of the annual fund, then we'd mm -hmm. stop in organizations that have siloed fundraising programs, there will be a co-ownership of everybody's success. Then we all work towards doing whatever is right for the donor and the mission. And they're interlinked either way, dang it, right? I mean, they are. Yes, the they are. ridiculous part. People contact me all the time saying, we want to do a plan giving campaign. And you're like, you know, for your size of organization, it's going to be way more effective to do lead generation from annual giving. Yeah. You don't even have the capacity to do this campaign. You don't even have a body to answer the phone call. So why are you doing it at all? And so integrated, no matter what the size of shop, is going to be a better way. But this is the challenge is that people don't want to make the time to do that collaboration. The question is always how, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I can hear fundraisers listening to this. Uh, bravo you for making good choices. Uh, I can hear fundraisers listening to this going, this is great, guys. This is all wonderful. But how do I do oh, this? Because yeah. I got to keep a job and keep my family fed yeah. and all of that. Yeah. I, I do I do think listening listening to, to all of this, we have missed somewhere along the way such, uh, and again, this is my Pollyanna perspective, we have missed such an important element of the work that we do because the work of nonprofit is us and ours and we. It's not me, my, mine. It's not I. It's not, it's not, and I've seen nonprofits that run on the business within a business model, you know. Programs is a customer of fundraising. I'm trying to stop it. Yeah. The, the fundament, if we could get our leadership to get into the mode of there are people or animals in the world that are experiencing a problem. We can help solve that problem. And our donors can be a part of it by providing the funding. So our program staff, the people who are out are doing the work, the boots on the ground, they're the ones solving the problem. This is one element. We have our beneficiaries who are working to solve the problem and needing help in solving the problem. And we have our donors encouraging us along the way and all of us peripheral, right? Fundraisers are helping to raise the money. Program staff is helping to do it. Finance is helping to fund the program. You know, all of these We've just, we've lost what it means to be, I think, mission-based. Mission, stop being data-driven. Let's be mission-driven. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, this is, um, who is it? Uh, Guy Malabone, who often says mission, money drives mission. Uh, and as much as people think that sounds garish and, and, and weird, you know, the fact is that everybody panics when there isn't money. Right. Right? There's never no mission. It's money that's in shorter supply for some Paul, the wonderful thing about donors, we see this in crisis fundraising all the time. We saw this in the pandemic. The wonderful thing about donors is when there's no money and there's problems to be met, donors will 
always step up. We see it in crowdfunding all the time. Somebody comes out and says, there's this problem and we need money for it. And people who want to help, who have as part of their identity is, I want to help. I want to be the kind of person that helps step up when we express it. And when we get out of our getting wound up into all of these nitty gritty issues and into problem solution you can help that's why jen shang's work at this uh, with the psychology of philanthropy is so important because if we just had that shared understanding that people are driven to have a purpose and to help um then maybe we would be more willing to um engage with them or engage we with all them. know we all know some donor who is and i can i could name names right here right people who just irritate the heck out of me and just they're mean not nice people and yet they deliver food every friday and they're on donor honor rolls you know yeah. there's there is, wow. i have to believe that inherent in all people is a willingness and a desire to do something good. My motives might be wrong. My ethics might be wrong, but, but that is, and boy, we just lose sight of it when we get ourselves all wound up and siloed and who's responsible for what and who does what and who does this and who does this. I think my, my, my champion, uh, my call to leadership is it's got to come from the board. It's got to come from the leadership of this is what culture of philanthropy is. Is We have a problem. We're here to solve a problem. And there are people who want to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I this think- is also, I think, our collective bias towards individual fundraising. It's one of the reasons why I've never hung my hat on grants or government money, because that's limited. And that flows with the ebb and flow of budgets yeah. and economies and all of that. Yeah. And we just know that individual donors and individual dollars, yes, are unlimited. They are as limited as the depth of the human heart. Yeah. Uh, Paul. There's no friggin' ceiling. And we also know, and like this is why I've tried to ask fundraisers, please read the business papers. Everybody likes to talk, economy's tanking. No, read it again. We have lumber shortages because people are renovating their houses. My latest keynote joke is that there's a Botox shortage uh, on different coasts of North America because people are renovating their faces. We have a a puppy shortage in North America. Like the money is burning a hole in quite a number of different economic classes pockets right now, right? They can't travel, they can't buy things and all that kind of stuff. And there's a ton of them who know I should be doing more good, but the case hasn't been made to them because everybody's falling back into that scarcity that timidness of fundraising without saying we are here solving these problems and we got to raise our voices. Yes, because we have transactionalized the relationship. We have made it about money and can you afford it or can you not? That's the question that fundraisers are asking, that nonprofits are asking. Nobody can afford it. Nobody can do. We have forgotten that we have lost sight of or maybe never we never had a firm grasp on Stop asking, start offering, start inviting. Henry Nowen, if you've never read Henry Nowen's A Spirituality of Fundraising, short little book. Um, I use this all the time. And he, for those that don't know it, uh, uh, a monk 
um, writer, uh, philosopher, mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful writer. If you've never read his work, it's beautiful. He was asked to spearhead the fundraising for his monastery. And he was very hesitant. And he had all of these same reservations. And in this little treatise, he goes through the, what he went through in his very prayerful and thoughtful meditative approach to how he was going to tackle um, fundraising. And he came to a definition of fundraising that is, and I, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but fundraising is offering others the opportunity to participate with us in our vision and our mission. Mm-hmm. We're not asking, we're not bothering, we're not harassing. Mm-hmm. We're offering you the opportunity. We're inviting you to be a part of that. It is such a, a small semantic shift, but I think it's a huge seismic shift in how we think about when we're doing renewal rates in mid-range, when we're doing you know, direct response renewal, think of every one of those as an invitation and not an ask. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not bothering you. I'm inviting you and you choose not to come. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I I at least carried forward that invitation to you. All of our strategies, all of our technology, all of that is just about simplifying and and expediting the invitation to be a part of this, this thing that I hope is a part of who you are. Stop asking, start offering. That's a great way to help people overcome that transact and we default to the transactional because it feels easy, right? I ask usually, you know, the funny thing is Henry Nowen's work is the one that should be read by every, uh, you know, faith-based fundraising group. And the fascinating thing is faith-based fundraising groups are the ones who have transactionalized fundraising the most. They're the ones oh, who are I literally passing plates. You just sales. under the bus. Oh my gosh. I will. I'm the first one to do it because again, the situation is a diet. Here in Canada, we, you know, it's been identified by Imagine Canada, one of our umbrella organizations, that one third, that's around 9,000 of Canada's 30,000 faith-based buildings, churches, mosques, synagogues, are going to go bankrupt and be either demolished or turned into condos in the next 10 years, not 20, 10 years. And what I'm, I'm outraged and I'm enraged because I love them dearly. I'm a person of faith. I love these institutions, but their own terrible attitudes towards fundraising. Sorry, it's not theology. It, in a lot of cases, it's not even their spiritual issues. It is their terrible attitude towards fundraising that, that is going to cause their bankruptcy because they think of fundraising as paying for buildings and all those things, as opposed to part of their stewardship, part of their theology, part of their ministry. Right. You described this when we started, Clay, today, talking about describing needs as the work we do. And yet so many people are like, this is what it's going to cost to keep the lights on and these current things. Whenever I see institutions start describing what they do as mission and talk about costs as mission and what is possible, again, that's when the numbers go through the roof. I'll, I'll pull this out here because it's the follow-up, by the way. Henry Nowen's book is probably the most read book on this. This was just published about uh, about a week ago. Uh, Lori Gunther Reeser, one of North America's experts in faith-based fundraising, has written a book about uh, a church and rethinking the way they talk and think about giving. I'm you always have, looking can for... You, what is the name of the book? The book, uh, the book is called Growing a Generous Church. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I'll share it for the for the notes after. But I've always been looking for something uh, and to accompany Henry Nowen's work, because that wonderful, wonderful book was still just a collection of these these things, and not someone actually bringing. Again, what we need is we need to marry fundraising theory with that common sense uh, kind of the default. We have to break through and make the case. Yeah. And yeah. we have to make the case more approachable to everybody at every level, be it boards or bosses or grassroots organization, because the biggest charities, they get it and they do it either way, because they're the ones who did take the lesson from Obama's campaign. The biggest organizations are the ones who are investing in the technology. And that's my my fear sometimes is that if we let fundraising default into the winners and losers, then it's not going to be democratized. It'll be the exact opposite. Great. Hundred percent. I have. I am okay. So I'll be honest. Um, I'm aware that there is a clean water shortage in the world. I understand that. I understand the diseases that come with it. I understand it's a huge problem. And I'm, you know, your heart has only capacity for so much. It was not one of my top ten causes, to be honest. Right. Made a gift to Charity Water from a professional courtesy standpoint because I have heard so much about Charity Water that I just wanted to see what they're doing. I'm in. I am in. I am in the spring. I, I watch their live Facebook events for donors only. I read every email that I get. I increase my monthly donation because they have done such a good, phenomenal job of explaining the problem and laying out the value proposition. And it's very easy to say, well, Charity Water has, you know, a kind of celebrity almost a celebrity level CEO, and they've got all these resources and they've got don't care they're telling their story in a phenomenal way mm-hmm. and on the regular i get something that says and i'm you know i'm not ashamed to admit it i think i think my gift is like 15 bucks a month like it's not huge i know i know how this works i know i'm not building a well personally but once a week i get something hey you know that well that you built in this country here's a picture of some kids that were splashing in that water because now they've got so much water that the kids can play and you know and here's here's these girls that like this is not hard this is just not hard we have so much at our fingertips that can make so much of this easy in a way i kind of i i kind of go we we're limiting ourselves by adding on all these layers and restrictions and now I've got to do this and I can't say this. And I guess just tell the story, just get it out there. And and I think that's, that's to your point, Paul, about churches in in some way, in, in, in so, in so many ways, stop worrying about what story you're going to tell and just tell the story. Yeah. And again, you know, a, a lot of different organizations, churches or anybody, YMCs or all of that, they get lost in the story of their operations. There you go. We are what we do. And that's not necessarily the case. We are are what we are trying to do. Right. And so that's the challenge. A lot of people, you know, again, that whole data world where they're like, let's get the numbers and let's put out the numbers. We do this many things and put out this many, you know, community units. And that's not gonna, that's not gonna punch through to the heart. Yeah, the sanitization of nonprofit terminology, that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, the words we use to describe people. Go. Oh. See, I teased up, I just conscious of yeah. time, I just kind of teased up my invitation back. See how I did that? 
If you like this episode, stick around and listen to the special bonus episode where we continue our conversation and talk about cool kids, Twitter cliques, and how we're all just a bunch of dorks. Remember to share, like, subscribe, and review this podcast so that we can keep building the intersection community. Thank you for choosing to spend your time here. See you next time.